Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in, wherever you are in the UK and around the world. And as ever, well, it doesn't need saying, does it? We have got so much to cram in in our time together today. And like last week, I'm doing this from a beautiful studio, so you should be able to relax about the quality of the sound. It's going to be like listening to a symphony. Anyway, first of all, if it's okay with you, I'll tell you what we're going to be doing in our time together. I'll give you a report back from the live shows last week, which included dramatic votes on predictions about the fate of Boris Johnson. Uh, Then, again, if it's okay with you, I'd like to reflect a bit about what the epic drama we are living through tells us about the modern Conservative Party, because I think it's been an overlooked dimension. Uh, you know, there's so much focus these days on, you know, what's Starmer doing about Labour? Oh, Labour this, Labour, they've got to change. Let's have a look at the modern Conservative Party in the midst of this uh, saga. And then we've got some fantastic questions from many of you. Uh, and there to come as well. Before I give the report on uh, the live shows, uh, just a reminder, we've got kind of a few more days to do this. A lot of you, I hope, who emailed me asking for uh, stickers with messages for the book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, as a Christmas present. Hopefully, a lot of you will have had the stickers. Uh, A lot more, I'm going to do some today, a lot more will have them Uh, later on in this week. And there's just time if you are looking for Christmas presents. Uh, It is Christmas Sorted, the Prime Ministers We Never Had, from Rab Butler to Jeremy Corbyn, uh, my new book. If you get that and want me to do a signed sticker, email me at the usual address, steverick14 at icloud.com. The same email, of course, if you've got points and questions. And I will, uh, you've got to send the address in. Some of you have forgotten to give me the address, but you have done belatedly. Uh, I will send you a signed sticker with whatever message you want on it. So you've got Christmas sorted and the recipients just sit there on Christmas Day reading the book. You won't see them. Uh, so that is still available for this week. And then after that, I think we've run out of time. Uh, and those of you who haven't got it, if you haven't got it and have asked me already, let me know because it kind of there are loads of questions and requests for these stickers and I might have missed one or two out. I don't think so, but if I have, please let me know. Yeah, well, what dramatic, epic live uh, shows uh, last week. One at the great Rope Tackle Arts Centre in Shoreham and uh, the other, the regular kind of monthly gig at King's Place. And I have to report uh, some dramatic uh, predictions from all of you. Uh, Now, uh, a a health warning, as I always say about these predictions, they're nearly always wrong. However, this lot can't all be wrong. So I asked on Wednesday evening the audience at the Rope Tackle Arts Centre in Shoreham to predict whether Boris Johnson will still be Prime Minister in a year's time. And a majority predicted that he wouldn't be Prime Minister in a year's time. It was close. 52-48, we thought. We all agreed, signalled a nightmarish evening to follow. 
It wasn't. It was great. But, you know, you know, 52, 48 has a ring about it, doesn't it? Uh, then on to King's Place, where the next day it was stream live as well. And there was a dramatic twist. The audience in the hall predicted that Boris Johnson would still be prime minister uh, this time next year by quite a large majority. So different from the rope tackle. Then people watching around the world on the live stream, I got their prediction at the interval. And it was the opposite. A big majority predicted that Boris Johnson would be gone. So what does that tell us? Not a lot, frankly. Uh, but it was interesting. So there, you did have two predictions, the live stream and the audience at the rope tackle predicting he'd be gone. Now, I know for sure that would not have been the case uh, just a few months ago, whichever audience I asked. So it is a reflection of the febrile state we are in. And if you want to see the reasons why some gave that Johnson would still be there, uh, you can still catch the stream at the King's Place website for a few more days, I think. Uh, it was it was great fun. Anyway, for all of you who came or who watched on the stream, thank you so much. I think we had a great, great, great time and it carried on, you know, drinks afterwards in London. I couldn't stay for the rope tackle because so I had to get a train uh, <laughs> next time, hopefully. Now, let's uh, move on. I think that's all the notices uh, for the kind of assembly wing of the podcast. I'll tell you what I've been thinking about most in recent days um, is this, that the, the weird twist in the Johnson saga is the one thing he is sort of doing right, though not by any means wholly, is the one thing his parliamentary party is worked up about more than the parties. And that is the mild constraints being proposed in response to the raging variant of this virus. And I, if you, we're so used to it now, you know, oh, joining me now is Steve Baker, joining me now is David Davis, and they all say freedom is at the heart of the conservative philosophy, freedom, freedom, freedom. This is a disgrace. We're going to vote against it. We stand for the people and the freedom of the people. And so we're used to it, almost to the point, to use a common word at the moment, we're immune to quite how shocking this is. Think about it for a second. A variant is raging around the country. No one knows for sure its significance. We all hope, of course, that we find out that it is milder or less severe than some of the other variants that have caused mayhem, but we don't know. And therefore, to take precautions until we do know as it spreads like fire. It just seems to me so obvious, so rational. The only question is whether the precautions are intense enough. And of course, there are silly Monty Python elements to it, as there always are with this particular administration, the one that has been mocked even by his doting supporters at the Daily Telegraph, don't go to work, but go to a work party. It's silly. But that they are taking precautions should not be a cause for dissent. And yet, by the time you hear the podcast, you, if you're listening on the Tuesday, you will uh, know a vote is looming, uh, which is going to be a big Tory revolt. 
And if you are listening after that revolt, you will know the scale of it. But it's clearly going to be big. A revolt against the most minor constraints. And compared, a friend of mine who has spent the last few months in Berlin tells me there, it's really straightforward, this so-called vaccine passport. You go into a shop, they click on your phone, it takes 20 seconds and you're in. And that is happening very methodically uh, in other countries. They are going, this government, nowhere near that level of regulation in response so far to Omicron or whatever, forgive the mispronunciation if I've got that wrong. I'm still grappling with the pronunciation. And yet here it is a huge revolt. And let's reflect a bit about this and what it tells us about the modern conservative parliamentary party. As I said at the beginning, there's all this stuff about the dysfunctionality of the Labour Party. Oh, Keir Starmer hasn't done enough. He needs to take them on again. He needs to purge so-and-so. He needs to get rid of X, Y, Z and all the rest of it. Now, you, regular listeners will know my view about the mythology of a leader taking on his or her party. Uh, but there is no doubt the Labour Party, having lost four elections in a row, is dysfunctional. A dysfunctional party loses elections and therefore there are issues. But it's so one-sided, this thing. Oh, yeah, it's got to be the Labour Party. Oh, you've got to sort of... What about this modern parliamentary Conservative Party? Where, and no doubt reflecting views of that uh, weird membership of um, elderly reactionary figures who wield so much power in this country, elected Boris Johnson as prime minister in the first place. So here we have a dynamic where an instinctively libertarian prime minister, so libertarian, he was up for parties in number 10 on a regular basis, it seems, um, is now facing a rebellion by people who are even more libertarian. Now, this word freedom is one of the most ubiquitous in British politics, used with brilliant effect by Margaret Thatcher in a slightly different context. Uh, by the way, I think, you know, this is a terrible what if, what would Thatcher be doing, you know, said about Brexit. Um, but she was a sort of, she was a free marketeer, but she was socially authoritarian. And I do not think she would be voting with the libertarians who are on other matters Thatcherite on Tuesday. But you have this extraordinary acquisition of the term freedom by these libertarians. And what they really mean is, oh, people have the freedom to be selfish. Give the people the freedom to decide for themselves. Give the people the freedom to fall ill. Give the people the freedom to spread the illness to others who might not share their kind of laid-back approach to the raging variant. Uh, and it is an absolutely narrow view of freedom. It, this word is so potent politically because if you stand back, who's going to be against freedom? So the art of politics is to claim freedom for yourself. And in this context, it's very clear that those voting for the measures, which is to say, I, I, I think they should be tougher. I think personally parties and all that sort of thing should be stopped. 
Uh, and I'm a big fan of COVID passports. And if they were to be adapted, you watch people get that vaccine. You know, I, I, I think I mentioned before, I'm a season ticket holder at Spurs. Now, I don't know how many go who aren't vaccinated, but you watch them get vaccinated if it means not going to a game if you haven't got it. However, that's another matter because that's not being proposed. So the freedom that arises from measured, to use another cliche, measured constraints is the freedom to still feel it's okay to go to events because those there would have had the booster or whatever um, or have taken a test to prove that they haven't got it. That is a freedom worth holding on to. And it's a freedom that keeps the economy going. These libertarians uh, argue that what is being proposed will damage the economy. What damages the economy if, is if people fall ill or are so scared of falling ill they don't go out. So these measures actually free people up. And I hope, although I don't have great expectation, that Keir Starmer and indeed others who are rightly voting for the measures, um, or if you're listening after the vote, who have voted for the measures, will seize the term freedom and make it clear that freedom does not necessarily apply only to the freedom to be selfish. And I'll tell you why this is so profound on so many levels. One of the policies which made the biggest impact during the New Labour era didn't cost a penny. It was the smoking ban in public places. That will have saved the NHS a fortune uh, because it's led to a cut in smoking. It's led to a cut in people getting uh, diseases by standing or sitting near people who smoked and all the rest of it. That smoking ban, there's no way Boris Johnson would have proposed it. Say he's basically a libertarian. It is so ironic that he is at odds with his libertarian wing in his party. But that's where he is at the moment. But the smoking ban was a liberating move. It was not draconian or uh, uh, an undermining of freedom. It was a giver of freedom because people then felt more free to go to pubs because they know they wouldn't just be inhaling stale smoke uh, and restaurants and indeed on public transport. There was places, like, yeah, no, I, never, I used to do it myself, carriages on tubes where you could smoke and all the rest of it. So the smoking ban was a liberating move. But just to go back to it for a moment, uh, it, was, it was a nightmare. Uh, because, first of all, Tony Blair was quite insecure about it at the beginning uh, because he dreaded front pages about the nanny state and the Daily Mail and all the rest of it. Um, he was warned by John Reed that the working classes wouldn't like it. They liked going to the working men's club and smoking. And so he was wary. And he, he used a very revealing phrase to me once when I was having coffee with him. He said, the people gave us permission to introduce the smoking ban. In other words, in the end, the focus groups and the opinion polls suggested a big majority in favour of a smoking ban, as there are now, incidentally, big majorities in favour of measures to constrain the spread of this bloody virus. 
people, in inverted commas, have a deeper sense of freedom than the libertarians who think they own it. And so if there had been a Johnson-led government in that period, there would have been no smoking ban. And likewise, now, if the libertarian wing of the Tory party continue to exert this assertive influence over number 10, not prevailing at this moment, but they might. I mean, I know people in number 10 now who think there will have to be more measures to stop or to try and stop the spread of this thing. Yet will they have the political space to do it, given anyway Johnson's inclination to towards libertarianism, uh, given that these Tory MPs won't accept it? And I think we need to look more closely at the state of the modern Conservative Party. You know, it is so far removed from that one nation Toryism of uh, Macmillan and Heath and Rab Butler uh, and all those people. And you can see tantalizingly hints towards a move away from extreme forms of Thatcherism in the leaderships of both May and Johnson. Uh, Theresa May opened her prime ministership by talking about the good that government can do. That Those words would not have been uttered by any of her predecessors. And Johnson too is in some ways, albeit chaotically, an interventionist. Um, I think only he would have put up taxes, supposedly to pay for social care, but because it's all chaotic with him, it's going towards the NHS. And this is another twist in this saga. There's no doubt, as two of the audiences uh, last week predicted, Johnson could be gone uh, by uh, at some point next year. The mood is turbulent and febrile. However, given the wacky membership uh, the chances are that any Tory leadership contest will take place way to the right of Johnson. In other words, to win, uh, candidates would have to pitch themselves as libertarian in relation to COVID constraints, if it happens while COVID is still raging, uh, will have to be as Eurosceptic as it's possible to be, full endorsement of Frosty's approach you know, oh, yeah, we'll all wear Union Jack socks and we'll all take on Europe. And if Europe threatens our relationship with Northern Ireland, we'll trigger Article 16. It will be a battle between candidates. However measured Jeremy Hunt might seem and uh, the Sag who might stand, you know, oh, get, get me the Sag, get me the Sag. It will be a dance way, way to the right of uh, uh, Johnson's sort of chaotic mix of Thatcherism and Keynesianism and all the rest of it. And uh, Sunak, who we talked about last week, is an orthodox Thatcherite anyway. And so this membership, which has produced a parliamentary party uh, with so many fundamentalist libertarians, um, would also elect the next prime minister if he were to go. So of course he should go for what has happened and on matters of basic integrity. But 
be very wary of what will follow. Uh, this parliamentary party is so removed from parliamentary parties, even of the 80s. And of course, one of the reasons why it is more like it now is that the sensible wing, in inverted commas, uh, were purged in the autumn of 2019. You know, suddenly people like Philip Hammond were becoming sort of left-wing revolutionaries as they were purged from the Tory parliamentary party. Rory Stewart, Ken Clark, all that lot purged. And so unsurprisingly, you have a curious mix of English nationalism, libertarianism, bewildered Thatcherism. And, you know, this red wall which kind of needs a different approach to politics. And as I say, creeping out of the mayhem are stilted moves towards a more one-nation Toryism. But I suspect a leadership contest, look at Liz Truss, you know, posing now, dressing up as Margaret Thatcher in a tank, it would uh, revert back to a very uh, orthodox anti-state uh, Thatcherism combined with this libertarianism. So, you know, yes, Labour is dysfunctional. No party is functional if it loses four elections in a row. And yes, all the talk about, you know, what needs to be done is valid, um, although overdone in some respects. But what about this weird modern Tory party that elects prime ministers without any intervention from the wider world um, and has so many MPs not basically willing to accept mask wearing and working from home while a thing spreads? Anyway, I haven't even talked about Partygate, but it's there lurking. I, I suspect Partygate, uh, no one should be fed up with it because that's the way people get away with things. And that's the strategy in number 10, brazen it out until people are bored with it. It raises many issues about attitude um, and and a sort of sense of cocooned privilege, um, which we can talk about another time. It definitely should not have run its course and cannot do so um, because it raises such profound issues. But I think lurking underneath this is a deeper issue about this modern conservative party. And now, after a very short break, over to you with a brilliant range of questions. Okay, let's start with uh, a question from, well, actually, it's an observation from Peter Landers. Uh, Peter, uh, I met, I'm thrilled to have met at King's Place uh, last week uh, because he, he came to the show from Wales. I think it was Newport. He sent me a, a photo. And anyway, he's uh, emailed since with a couple of sort of uh, counterintuitives. Counterintuitive is, 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 is fun. Uh, if um, Peter, I think you would probably agree, we, it doesn't lead us very far because we don't know. But he says, an interesting thought is that if uh, Jeremy Corbyn hadn't committed political suicide by agreeing to the 2019 election, he might still be Labour leader and on the verge of moving into number 10. Well, certainly any leader of the opposition uh, would at this point uh, be ahead in the polls, I think. 
you know, um, it, I think it's unsurprising, to be honest, that Labour are ahead in the polls. If not now, when? And so you were right if um, Jeremy Corbyn was still leader, he would be ahead in the polls. Um, and if there hadn't been an election then, there would have to be an election now-ish. So yeah, yeah, who knows? Uh, and a general election in the current context. Uh, well, yeah, counterintuitives uh, only take us so far, I think. Uh, another one is, uh, Peter says, one of the things which I disagree with you uh, is about the late 1970s. I believe that had Jim Callaghan gone to the country in October 1978, and there was huge speculation that Callaghan was going to go to the country then, he would have won. Not convincingly, but he would have won. And with the oil revenues starting to flow, Britain might have moved in a more social democratic direction. Brown, decades later, made a similar error by not going to the uh, country, uh, but that was vanity. I don't think it was vanity, Peter. I think it was absolute extreme fear in Gordon Brown's mind that he would lose that election. Having waited so long to get into number 10, he would blow it within months and be kicked out. Yeah, I mean, lots of people think that uh, Jim Callaghan, if he'd gone in the autumn of 1978 before the winter of discontent, that epic, dark drama, uh, would have at least got a, a minority Labour government back in and David Steele was much more sympathetic to Callaghan, the leader of the Liberals at the time. Uh, he loathed Thatcher. Um, so perhaps, but I've got a feeling Margaret Thatcher would still have won, though not as big. Uh, let's hear from our regular correspondent in France, Dominique Joule. Uh She compares uh, Johnson with Macron. Now, apparently, uh, Dominique says, uh, uh, Macron's head chef has written a memoir. Uh, only in France does the head chef you know, write a memoir. Um, and apparently the head chef has said that because Macron works so hard, the demand for meals declined dramatically. Uh, he's got no time for meals because he's working all the time, which put, makes the head chef a bit redundant. Yeah, it, I mean, he's absolutely a workaholic, um, unlike uh, Boris Johnson, who I heard, did you hear the sad, John, the Today programme say he just works every minute of the day? Well, we've seen photos of him doing a quiz, you know. Um, but Macron is absolutely driven. And you, you, it's not by any means the only qualification. And Macron has shown himself to be more flawed than his instinctive admirers in the UK thought at the beginning when he was hailed as this great model. Um, far too prematurely. But like Merkel, hard work is an absolute essential qualification for leadership. It's a very basic one. Um, anyway, thank you for that. You, you get little insights from Dominique Jewell, you know, about France, you know, the head chef's verdict on Macron. Uh, Joshua O'Connor Joshua uh, says, it's my view that Keir Starmer believes consciously or unconsciously that opposition parties don't win elections, incumbent governments lose them. It seems that this strategy might now be finally paying off in the polls. Do you think that A, this is Starmer's view, B, that this is a sensible strategy, Biden in the US's recent evidence, and perhaps, and C, whether it can get Starmer into Downing Street? Joshua, uh, I don't think that's Starmer's view. I think he he knows um, that he needs to present 
and his party needs to present a credible, radical, popular alternative. And it needs to be all of those. And it's a difficult combination to pull off. He's not there yet. Um, but he knows that's what he's got to do um, and that he cannot be dependent just on a government screwing it up because if that was the criteria, frankly, Labour would have been in in one of the earlier elections. B, that this is a sensible strategy, Biden in the US, no, it would be far too risky to be complacent and see whether it can get Starmer into Downing Street. No, um, there can be as there is at the moment, a realisation that the Johnson government is chaos. But people, voters, remember most, we are wholly untypical. Most voters don't follow politics. They could possibly forget all that's gone on and still vote for him in a couple of years' time. Or there could be a new prime, uh, new Tory prime minister who has a different appeal and then it starts all over again. So Starmer needs to get that right. Uh, he himself needs to continue working on his presentation, which is improving, um, but isn't fully developed. And there, the combination, credible, radical, and popular. Uh, and that is a difficult one to pull off. Um, thank you for that, Sam Dawkins. Finally made it to a live show at King's Place uh, last week, rather than attending from home uh, virtually. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, he went with a, a, a regular e emailer, Danny Barker, my son, Ellis, and had a great evening. Oh, great. And we plan to attend the show early next year. Oh, great. Yeah, there's one in January. Uh, January the 24th, I think, or something like that. Our journey wasn't without complications. Oh, yeah. There's a, God, they, they traveled miles, a bit like uh, Peter Landers. Um, and I'm so sorry you ended up in trains cancelled, taxis, all the rest of it. Um, but anyway, as a bonus, Sam Dawkins said, as a Labour supporter, I'm feeling unexpectedly happy at the turn politics has taken these past few weeks since the Patterson affair. However, if the Tories were to dispense with Johnson, would that solve their problems and restore lost popularity? Should the Labour Party be careful what it wishes Four. Well, as you point out, there are uh, parallels here. You know, the, the, when they dumped Margaret Thatcher for John Major, a lot of voters, as Kinnock re reflected it painfully afterwards, thought there had been a change of government. John Major in demeanour and in other respects was so different. Um, now, this time is more complicated because my guess is the field would be Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss, the Saj, and Jeremy Hunt. And they would all, as I said earlier, have to pitch to this very right-wing membership, which elected uh, Boris Johnson, not on the grounds that they adored him, although I think they kind of did see him as a great laugh, but because he was offering the hardest possible Brexit, amongst other things. And they would all have to pitch to the right. Now, that would get them, one of them, into number 10. But then what do they do about the red wall seats and this levelling up agenda? If they've pitched to the right promising tax cuts, there will be no money for those red wall seats. And those red wall voters are economic interventionists, which is why Johnson has got something of an in with them. Because at times when his mood feels like it, he too is an interventionist. Not always. He, can, he wants tax cuts at the last next election, as we discussed last week. So it's not a straightforward route, this one.
uh, a leadership contest and new leader. But a new leader, Rishi Sunak, that he would get a lot of support in the newspapers. That will influence the BBC. There will be a honeymoon. They might call an early election and so on. So, uh, so Labour have to be alert to how they respond to a change of leader. But it's not straightforward for the Conservatives. Uh, Nick Jones wonders that uh, he's been disappointed by the vow of silence Labour have taken on anything to do with Brexit. It's getting really silly because there is so much chaos and more to come in January with something called the rules of origin. I mean, trade is going to be even more nightmarish. Um, uh, but do you think that the current concentration on Boris's honesty or lack of it actually gives Starmer permission to comment and include the handling of Brexit as the disaster it is, i.e. he lied over the Christmas party, he lied over taxes, he lied over the flat refurbishment. And of course, we know he lied during the referendum campaign and during the Brexit negotiations. This doesn't tell people they were wrong to vote they did, just that they did so under a false premise. Well, obviously, you don't phrase it like that, Nick, because you can't tell people they were foolish enough to vote for a false premise. However, I do think the Brexit negotiations are absolutely in the pattern of all these other things, the sort of casual frivolity almost in which he approaches things. Um, so, you know, oh, yeah, the wallpaper, I'll tell so-and-so this. And if it's not, you know, and, and oh, oh, yeah, the party, let's say there wasn't one. And we ca- there is a sort of casual frivolity as there was uh, a year ago as those Brexit negotiations reached a climax. Cummings, who is an unreliable narrator, but not wholly, reports a meeting that I believe absolutely happened, where towards the end of the negotiation a year ago, uh, Johnson heard Frost outline a scenario at the end of this uh, negotiation. And uh, Johnson said, right, yeah, Christ, well, if it's as bad as that, we better get a deal. We better get, let's get a deal. Um, And Frost said, no, no, that's the outcome with a deal. So he didn't, he had no idea what the customs union meant or single, you know, so Uh, It's all part of a pattern. And a supple Labour leader would move it right into focus in that way um, without at any point implying voters were uh, – voters can insult politicians and they do all the time. But no politician can insult a voter. It's an unfair dynamic in that respect. Um, Caroline Morgan, who uh, works in Brussels, says – uh, yeah, Keir Starmer comes to the House. It's, a lot, it's very interesting, you know, when the polls change, you get a lot more sort of pro-Keir Starmer emails. I've received, I would say 95 of the emails I've received about uh, Keir Starmer have been critical. But now, uh, well, I'm sure, Caroline, this has been her view all along, but it's interesting that more emails are coming in, putting the case for him. Um he comes to the House of Commons not only with his DPP experience, but also with years as a preeminent QC. OK, these aren't the same skills as are needed in politics, but um, someone who can get to the very top of his field outside politics, start again as an MP at 53, bringing with him advocacy and reasoning skills way beyond the norm in the House of Commons, um, is a force to be reckoned with. And in contrast to the current cabinet. Yeah, a weak cabinet and a deliberately weak cabinet chosen for its uh, willingness to be subservient and not scrutinise Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson has a fear of scrutiny at any level. 
uh, the live shows last week and on the stream, as some of you know, I sort of analysed the only time he's really at ease as a public figure is when he's dressing up. I found the most vivid image last week, the one where he was dressed up as a policeman, uh, you know, in Liverpool to start, ironically, their week of law and order themes when the only law and order focus was their own. Uh, activities. Um, but yeah, he likes dressing up and you, you're, you're going to see him dressed up as a farmer and as a builder and all the rest of it because he doesn't really know who he is. And as part of that not knowing, he fears scrutiny. Um, and yeah, uh, uh, Kisama does have uh, considerable skills. And, and by the way, he is so far a winner. Everything he's wanted, he's got. He rose to the top in the law. He got a seat. And it's very difficult being a a male in your 50s to get a safe seat. He got one for Labour. Um, and then he got into the shadow cabinet very quickly and then became Labour leader. So he does achieve what he wants, sometimes a bit on the clunky side like those pledges he gave the Labour Party membership. He didn't have to do that. He was going to win anyway. Um, but he is a winner. However, Caroline, as I said at King's Place, the artistry of leadership is still not fully realised and, and I think needs to be. Uh, Sarah Murphy, the uh, I'm sure you all follow her on Twitter because I think the whole world follows Sarah on Twitter. Um, she writes, surely it won't simply be a case of just replacing Boris Johnson. The Tory brand would need some serious work. And given who Johnson recruited and binned in his bid for power, there is simply no one with the experience, credibility, intelligence, integrity and popularity to repair the damage. Uh, it's a very tough act to follow for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, it, you, you are right to say that will be the challenge of a new Tory leader. This is what will happen if he falls. And again, isn't it interesting that we're talking about this? Uh, and I can tell you everyone is, Tory MPs too. What if? That doesn't mean it's about to happen, but what if? And that tends to be the stage before something happens. Um yeah, it, it is a it, it is a tough act to follow for uh, all the wrong reasons because there will have to be a rebranding uh, for a Tory prime minister to fall amidst this sort of conflagration. But if, say, Sunak got it, he has a charming plausibility and I think he will have quite a big honeymoon and the Conservative supporting newspapers will dote on him with the intensity they have devoted to Boris Johnson, and he will get more of a, even more of a hearing in papers like The Times, which heavily influences the BBC, than Boris Johnson has got. Um, and, and The Times has treated Boris Johnson with reverence, except for a couple of their columnists. So, yeah, um, it is very challenging. And as I say, it's more complicated than when John Major succeeded Margaret Thatcher. Uh, but don't underestimate the honeymoon uh, a, a kind of measure, a seemingly measured, decent figure will get. Uh, Jeff Strange, uh, oh yeah, Jeff Strange has a counter to the pro Starmer emails I've been getting. I admire Keir Starmer, but he's a man for the engine room uh, uh, or a second in command. This is Jeff's view. He performed well in the Brexit debates and performs well when required to offer that forensic critique of the government. But I feel he lacks the passion, even the anger that Blair, John Smith and even Ed Miliband displayed when at the dispatch box. 
And I'm also concerned that he's becoming Peter Mandelson's puppet. I think you can see at the moment um, the influence of that wing of the Labour Party on him. And he needs to certainly make sure um, he exposes himself to other people other than those whose politics were framed by the 1980s and mid-1990s. This is a very different set of challenges. He's beginning to show more passion. I think you don't go into politics from a successful career in the law without feeling a passionate desire to change a country. You just don't bother, frankly. So he, the, there is a passion there. Um, and he struggles to convey it because obviously in law, that's one thing you don't do. You have to be measured and you know evidence-led and so on. The last thing you do is display uh, overwrought passion. And actually, overwrought passion isn't required now, but a sense of passion is. Um, Jeff was struck. Somebody at King's Place uh, uh, who lives in Kentish Town said, um, there is no empathy or, or Starmer, there is no rapport for Starmer when he, this guy from Kentish Town, speaks to a lot of the voters in the area, uh, working people, uh, ethnic minorities and so on. Um, and he, Jeff, wonders whether there's a woman, female candidate, who could combine the disillusioned of Kentish Town and Sunderland in the northeast. There's a challenge, and all without Scottish voters, Jeff reflects, it is one hell of a challenge. I don't think, for the same reason, actually, a leadership contest for the Tories would be a nightmare. A leadership contest for Labour really would be a nightmare, not least because it's, you know, so recently they've just had one. And they're always having leadership contests, always a symptom of a disturbed party. Um, but they too, the candidates, would have to pitch things and pledges uh, to win uh, that would then mean they would probably lose a general election. So I don't think it's going to happen, Jeff. Um, and Keir Starmer needs to work on how you – it's a very it's – it's artistry. It's so interesting. How you convey in a way that a whole range of different groups and regions can relate to. So you get them to say, oh, yeah. Yeah, I kind of – yeah, he's, he's really interesting. And only Wilson and Blair were able to do it for Labour from a position of opposition. And um, uh, he, he, he's got to find a way of doing it. Um, Joe Ruffles, uh, the great Joe Ruffles, who who travels, frankly, yeah, long distances sometimes to see uh, my uh, live show. Um, uh, yeah, we're back to electoral reform. Da -da -da -da, the great kind of thing that uh, gets some of you uh, going. Um, uh, oh, no, no, we're, we're not holy. Sorry. Uh, let's go to Joe. Then Don't worry. Electoral reform's coming. Uh, Joe says, I've been comparing and contrasting the government going on in Berlin and London this week. A sensible, pragmatic, left of centre, but business-aware coalition with a grown-up programme for government is in Berlin. I'm sure it will not be clear sailing. There are always storms and issues. But off to a decent start, I'd say. Joe lives in Berlin, I think. Uh, or is it Brussels, Joe? Uh, just remind me. Or our, our check. It would be interesting to get your thoughts on what, if anything, politically engaged people in the UK could learn from modern Germany. I don't think Merkel was perfect, by the way. I wouldn't have voted CDU, but she was a thoughtful adult who took the job seriously. Uh, sadly, that's not the low bar that it should be anymore. 
uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, Merkel, and uh, you compare her with Johnson, it's like d- comparing two different species. Um, but uh, there, there is a heck of a lot you can learn from uh, Germany, some of which I kind of feel mixed about. I mean, it is a lot less theatrical the politics of Germany. And that encourages more kind of sober-minded people to flourish, really. Uh, here, here we kind of, as in the United States, we kind of fall for performance and performers. Uh, and there are many other things, structural things that we could learn from uh, Germany. I still think some of the sort of economic structures and the way employers and employees kind of dance together in various ways are kind of big things to learn. What about the voting system um, in Germany where after months they've now got a new government but it's taken a long time for the coalition to come together. Joe, that's my segue into the electoral reform debate. Um, Tony Ahmet says, is there a comparable president from the first past the post that you can relate the cu- current situation Oh, sorry. No, this isn't. Sorry. Tony isn't writing about. I am just assume everyone's writing about electoral reform uh, because I got get a load of emails on it. Uh, Tony Ahmed says, is there a comparable? I saw the pass. I thought, oh, first past the post, you know. Is there a comparable president from the past that you can relate the current situation to? No, Tony. I mean, I could tell you uh, in number 10 now, there is a sense of being totally besieged. Um, and that is common. That is very common. Uh, to, to give an example, which is quite similar in some respects, when uh, Andrew Gilligan uh, did his BBC reports and then wrote a piece for the Mail on Sunday about Alistair Campbell and then went on elsewhere to say Blair lied to get to war and Campbell sexed up documents. And the BBC kind of backed every word to quote uh, one of its many senior managers. Um, They felt besieged because they knew elements of the Gilligan report were wrong, but they were, uh, it was being reported as sort of tablets of stone uh, by a combination of uh, media outlets that were anti-war or loathed the Labour government. And there was that besieged thing of, oh, the media, it's us against the media and so on, is what the number 10 feels now. But there is no precedent for this combination of circumstances where you have a prime minister's integrity being exposed at a moment when trust needs to be at the absolute center of a government telling people how to behave, as I said earlier, rightly and not telling us enough how to behave. Um, So this is there is nothing quite like the madness we're living through. Uh, If you were his special advisor, Tony says, would you how would you be advising him now? Um, actually, they're following the only option available to them, which is to uh, try and just keep going and blazon it out, hope that people get bored with the party stuff um, and use outrageously outlets available to them to try and change the focus solely onto the virus and what needs to be done. I mean, Sunday night, taking a peak time party uh, uh, broadcast, you know, from number 10, while, where he didn't really have much more to say than the Wednesday press conference, which was only put there on the Wednesday to distract from the whole party thing and prime questions. Um, but that that is what they should be doing, just trying to busk it 
and hope people move on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's doing the only stuff available to him in the circumstances. Uh, Nick Baldwin, are we now, electoral reform? Having previously supported electoral reform, I'm increasingly coming to the view that it would be better uh, to have a left of centre voting bloc. Yeah, a kind of anti-Tory alliance with the Lib Dems, Labour. Nick says the question is how. And it is not obvious, frankly. This stuff comes round in cycles after four terms of Conservative governments. This was a running theme in the mid-1990s when Labour and the Lib Dems started to dance together, Blair and Ashdown and others working together on certain things. Electoral reform was whirling around. But as we're seeing, you know, from the by-elections, the only option really is for one of the non-Tory parties to vote for the other in an attempt to defeat a sitting uh, or or a Tory seat. Um, To have a formal pact is impossible. I've mentioned this before. Even the SDP Liberal Alliance, Bill Rogers was the sort of one of the gang of four who was responsible for negotiating with the Liberals the distribution of seats, and it was a nightmare. And David Owen started moving away from the others just part, largely on that basis, actually, and related issues. So, you know, it's, it, it's really tough. Uh, Mark Davis, a few weeks ago, you were asked to compare Boris Johnson with other prime ministers of the 20th and 19th century. Yeah, this I think that was on the great uh, Bunker podcast, also recorded from where I'm sitting now. As I recall, you said you could think of none similar in the 20th century and that it wasn't possible to compare with prime ministers of the 19th century because the circumstances were so different. But I would ask you to consider whether there is some similarity between the current prime minister and David Lloyd George. Only a bit. Lloyd George pushed the boundaries big time um, in the way that Johnson does, but he was a much more substantial figure. Lloyd George was one of the, I I think, well, there are a couple of other possible rivals, but was one of the great reformers of the 20th century, as a chancellor mainly, but as a prime minister partly. And when he stopped being prime minister, it's really interesting reading some of his speeches from the late 20s, early 30s. Um, he he was a kind of Keynesian before Keynes and um, was a formidable, serious figure. But yeah, he, he kind of, yeah, he would have done the same. You know, we've kept to the rules when we haven't kept to the rules kind of line on other areas. Um, but I think by miles, uh, Lloyd George was a more substantial figure. Um, so Tony Ellis, um, like you, oh, we're back onto electoral reform. We're a bit, I'm spreading them out the electoral reform once this week. Like you, I'm somewhat skeptical about PR. But first, something more important is getting the shambles of English local government sorted out. Then perhaps we could consider PR for for that local government. Yeah, yeah. There was the, uh, kind of various parties have gone on, on in with proposals for electoral reform for local government and so on. You're right, local government is a mess. It's one of the lessons to learn from Germany, to go back to a previous question. What a mess. Um, and there is such ambiguity. So, for example, Gove at the moment in his levelling up white paper is looking at devolving power. 
And the Labour government elected in 97, this is a classic phrase which sums up the mess local government is in. In advance, Blair spoke at a local government conference. He said, yeah, you know, we're going to give power away to local authorities, right? As long as you, local authorities, use that power responsibly. And that begs the key question, which in the culture of centralised Britain has never been resolved. Who decides whether the power is being used responsibly or not? And in the end, it tends to be the Treasury, um, who doesn't want, understandably in some ways, I'm not, I can understand the ambiguity, who doesn't want to give away money and then lose all control over how it's spent. But that's one example of many uh, in which it's, as you uh, describe it, Tony, a ragged patchwork at the moment that makes little sense in terms of accountability and organisation. Yeah. Absolutely. A very good point. Uh, Dan Cartledge um, goes back to a theme of the podcast a few weeks ago uh, about how um, – uh, oh, yeah, I think it was Tony Ellis himself, maybe maybe some another Tony, who first pointed out playing politics, that term. Actually, in another email, Rob Watson notes the defensiveness of the term, the accusation, playing politics. Um, along with we must do more to get our message across as if these you know minor things are the, the, the issue and it's always deeper than that. Den Cartley says, can I share some counterfactual musing on voting reform? I think broadly speaking, most of your PR listeners would probably fall into a progressive pro-EU category politically. But I wonder how many of them have considered how PR would really have impacted on UK elections since 2006. 2006 is the key date here, as Lord Jenkins had that timescale in mind for introducing his AV plus voting system. That I'd forgotten that it was going to start in 2006. So that would have made the 2010 general election the first to take place under that system. UKIP came second. Uh, after the Tories in the 2009 European elections that also use PR. So isn't it possible that the coalition that forms after the first Roy Jenkins AV plus election isn't Cameron and Clegg, it's Cameron and new deputy PM Nigel Farage. Result, Brexit referendum and Brexit arrives not in 2016, but 2011. Yeah, there are consequences to voting reform, not all of them. Rosie. Um, okay, Jesse Young from Washington. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, Jesse, you're the first uh, from outside the UK today. We normally have a few more. Get writing, those of you listening in Australia and Marseille. And uh, well, we've heard from, actually, no, we've heard from Dominica in France. Uh, Jesse said, devoured your new book in less than a week as I did your first. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, as I say, you know, those of you who want the new book and a sticker with a signed thing for Christmas, a few days to go, so let me know. My question is whether you'd agree with the following reason that Roy Jenkins never sees the prize. There's a chapter in The Prime Minister's We Never Had about Roy Jenkins. He was unwilling to engage with the identity-based culture of Labour. It wasn't that he drank fine wine and rubbed elbows with the glitter set. It's that he seemed determined to shed his Welsh origins and accent, as Nye Bevan noticed famously, right? He was uncomfortable with the trade union culture of Labour in that era and seemed to relish spurning those basic retail political necessities for leading the party. 
Of course, I'm American and maybe totally wrong. Uh, Jesse, I don't think that was the... I think perhaps that rather grand manner he came to adopt was one of the issues. But it was more basic than that. You know, first of all, the then Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, was much more secure than he, Wilson, or Jenkins, or Jenkins' followers, realised and hard to dislodge. But the other was Europe, the great issue of British politics that brings down prime ministers and stops others from becoming prime minister. Jenkins was a pro-European when his party wasn't, and it, it just became impossible for him. Now, blimey, we've been going for nearly an hour, so I'm going to rush past uh, two or three more thoughts. My wife and I have been keen followers of the podcast from the beginning, yeah, and generally uh, listen to it while driving in rural Herefordshire. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, nice countryside always helps. I haven't written to you before, but PR is a subject. Here we go, which always attracts my attention. So here goes. I've heard all the arguments for and against PR and first past the post and don't for a moment pretend to have a definitive solution. However, if I may, if it's okay with you, thank you. I would like to give my own entirely personal experience. This is from uh, Ted Phillips uh, uh, in Herefordshire. Democracy is sold to us as one person, one vote, with everyone having a say in who runs the country on our behalf. It's just not true. It's a lie. My vote has never had any effect. A lifetime of voting has been a complete waste of time. Um, yeah, I, to be honest, I've, uh, I've had the same. I don't think my vote has mattered. In I've never been in a marginal constituency. So that is a massive argument in favour of a change because more people might feel engaged, although uh, voting isn't much higher in uh, places with electoral uh, proportional representation. Um, but yeah, I, it, you, I, and you've been voting for even longer than me, Ted, I think. Uh, yeah, you have. Um, so, um, yeah, he says it's clearly broken and need of repair. I agree about the brokenness. I'm not sure about the repair. Um, so it's interesting. Now, Paul Cooper has said something. He, he's kind of analysed the impact of electoral reform in certain general elections. I don't know which one you put in, Paul, to come up with your conclusions. Uh, but he says that uh, the outcome of a lot of the general elections would not have been that much different in terms of who formed the government. He points out that in 2017, it could still well have been a combination of Tories and um, uh, the unionists, the DUP, and possibly with others from the right that would have got in through that system. He's done a kind of chart of all the uh, recent elections and the consequences of electoral reform. Partly depends on the system, uh, Paul, but as, um, yeah, as uh, another listener pointed out, in, it came in in the 2010 election. It could well have been Cameron and Farage in the Rose Garden having the love-in um, and we know what would have followed. It still followed anyway, actually, with uh, Nick Clegg. Um, OK, well, there we are. You must have run 10K, those of you who listen to the podcast whilst running. Uh, no, what am I saying? 10K? Even I can run 10K in this amount of time. No, no, maybe not, actually. 5K, it takes me 30 minutes. No, keep going. Keep going, those of you who are listening and running. Anyway, there's an epic week of politics uh, coming up and we will have to make sense of it all as we gather next week. Thank you so much for your questions. Keep them coming. If you want a signed sticker for a book to give as a Christmas present, Prime Ministers we never had or indeed the Prime Ministers, uh, please get in touch. Otherwise, 
Let's gather together for the pre-Christmas podcast and make sense of all that's going on then. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good week. Bye. Bye.